0: Uh, What a joy to have with us the president of Phoenix Seminary this morning, and things are just going great guns down there since he started working with them. And uh, he was senior pastor here to us for 25 years, and he's now our pastor emeritus, and he's with us this morning. We all love him. Welcome, Dr. Darryl Del Hussey. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to be home. I, uh, you know, uh, um, I am so thrilled to be able to come and serve the Lord, first of all, serve you, but also serve uh, Pastor Jamie. You know, for 40 years, I didn't have a pastor, and I, I have one now. And I don't know how much you use Jamie, but I use him all the time. <laughs> Jamie, give me this counsel. What do you think about that? We are so blessed to have a pastor who loves the Lord and loves the Word of God as much as Jamie. And so I am thrilled to be able to come and be able to give him some relief. And uh, uh, yeah, you'll be seeing more of me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to really this morning give you a, a summer assignment that I'll be coming back September 27th, and we'll have book reports on that, you know, following October, and so you'll see this mug around more and more. Uh, but it is great to be back. Those of you who don't know me, I am of Cajun-French descent, which does explain a lot of things. But the fact is, is that, that we, with French inheritance, we have a phrase. And the phrase is soi de Eve," And, and it, it's, it's embracing life. It, it's the love of, of life. So where we tend to be up. People ask me whether or not I drink coffee. Those of you who know me, do you really think I need to drink coffee? You know, we, no, no, no. We just have this love of life. But you know, as, as you know, uh, life has a way of beating you down. Uh, it's been said that, indeed, life can be counted on to provide all the pain any one of us will ever need. George Bernard Shaw, the, the British playwright, he, he was the one that described life basically as a disease. The great theologian Woody Allen, <laughs> he, he, he divided basically life in the horrible and the miserable. For for a lot of folks, joie de vivre, love of life, is more schwa de misere. That is, the love of misery. And yet, Tim Hansel, who was this outdoorsman who loved being outdoors years ago, and he was climbing a mountain, he broke his back, has been in pain ever since. But he went on to write a book called, You Gotta Keep Dancing. And in that book, he writes this. He says, pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. But joy is a choice. Remember in Psalm 51, David says, Lord, I pray that you'll restore to me The joy of my my salvation. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. If you love God, that means you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible... (laughs) Anyhow, open it to the uh, the book of Philippians. I want to introduce... The book of Philippians to you. Your your homework assignment this month is just four chapters. It's not going to break your brain at all. But I want you to study through it. I'm hoping by introducing the book to you this morning, it will just whet your appetite enough that you'll think, you know, I'm going to go through this book. I'm going to study this for for the entire uh, uh, summer because this is a book about joy. The word joy simply means the absence of fear, embracing the future. And I mean at a time like this, which I call a season of recalibration. It's a season that a lot of people are getting beaten on big time. Joy is being sucked out of you as fast as it can be. And as Christians, we, we, we stand. We stand out as luminaries in this world because there's something we have the world cannot figure out. And that something is this joy. 140 times you'll find the word joy used in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he uses it 50 times in the New Test in all his writings. As a matter of fact, in this short little book, Philippians. Let's listen to what he says in verse 1. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all in your progress and joy in the faith. Look how he begins chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, my participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy. Look what he says in verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Look how he starts chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. By the way, the word rejoice is simply the verb form of joy. It is actually being joyful. So, so this, this short letter is all about this, this concept of, of, of joy. Now, now this book is not a don't worry, be happy book type of thing. Because Paul understands that he's gone through some major reversals here. Paul's had a great ministry. He's come towards the end of his ministry. He's in prison in Rome, either house arrest or they're in a Mamertine prison, but he's chained to a soldier. People are mocking him outside the church who've hated him. People in the church are mocking him. His preaching ministry has been ripped from him. As far as he's concerned, he's got some good reasons to be bathed in depression. Some major, major reversals in his life. And yet he writes this letter, Philippians, and the whole book is this issue of joy. Now, interesting, I love, I love the statement of Karl Barth. Karl Barth says, joy is, quote, a continuous, defiant, nevertheless... It's when you get to the point that no matter what's going on, I may be in prison, chained to a soldier, I may have lost my ministry, but Paul, instead of giving us little sermons here, he's going to use himself as an example. He says, I I know joy is not something you can trump up yourself. Well, I'm just going to be not afraid. It's our nature to be afraid. There are fearful things in this world, physical, uh, economic, social, even spiritual for a lot of folks. And yet the fact is, it's not a fleshly thing. I cannot just all of a sudden say, I'm going to be joyful. Because Galatians 5, Paul makes it really clear, joy is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Well, well if joy is the absence of being fearful, embracing the future, and, and peace is a present sense of rest, even though the future is frightening... And I can't produce that myself. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. Then I want to know one thing. How do I put myself in a place so the Spirit of God can produce this experience of of joy, a sense of the absence of fear and this presence of rest? Well, Paul, he has all this reason to be fearful, to be depressed, to be down, and, and yet he'll use himself and say, let me tell you how I put myself in a place that I am not going to permit myself to be washed away joylessly, but rather, he says, I'm going to use myself as an example how I did this thing. Now, in these four, four chapters, 16 times Paul will talk about using the mind. This concept of putting ourselves in a place where the Spirit of God can actually produce joy happens between your ears. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, 10 times he'll talk about the mind. Five times he'll talk about thinking. One time he'll talk about remembering. So it has something to do with the way I interpret the world around me, the thoughts, the things I see to myself, when these things around me are beginning to hurt big time. So notice how he begins here. Paul says in chapter 1, he introduces Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Isn't it great in the New Testament letters, they tell you who wrote the book before you have to read the whole book. It's like you get a letter, you know, and say, you know, I love you. My heart just pounds when I'm with you. I want to be embraced by you, sign, mother. That's different than if it was from someone else, right? But back in these days, they wanted you to know up front, he says, this is from Paul and my my son in the faith, Timothy, and we are servants of Christ. I'm writing this to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi and, and to you overseers, the leadership, the deacons of the church. Now, the reason for that is because in Rome, in in prison, you better have some friends on the outside. They didn't serve you food, medical, uh, 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 medical care while you were in prison. You better get that from the outside. And this church, these leaders, they so love Paul, they send one of their pastors 600 miles on foot to come to Rome to care and to take care of the apostle Paul while he's in prison. So this letter really is a thank you letter saying, thank you, leaders, for not forgetting me and sending somebody to care. So he says, grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gets right into it. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, now why, why is Paul, is he just kind of blowing smoke here? Why is this church such an endearment to him? Well, Paul's the founding pastor of this church in Philippi. As a matter of fact, not only did he found the church, he, he protected the church. You go back to Acts chapter 16. Paul comes into Philippi and a and church begins to grow. Well, as the church begins to grow and people are coming to Christ, they're, they're, they're cutting down on their purchasing of idols, Well, the guys who basically made a living making idols, they're really ticked. This is all in Acts 16. So they go to the magistrates of of Philippi, and they get Paul and his traveling companion Silas arrested. Now, Philippi is a Roman colony. They had been a Roman colony at this time for 100 years. And And you really want to be a Roman colony because all of your citizens get to be citizens of Rome. You get certain tax advantages. It's something you don't want to lose and get in trouble Well, they go ahead and they hire Paul. I mean, they they basically arrest Paul and Silas, throw him in prison. And you remember the Philippian jailer story? There's this big earthquake. Paul's having choir rehearsal. And and all of a sudden, the the gates fly open. The jailer's about to kill himself, realizing that if he loses his prisoners, he's a dead man anyway. Out from that cave, that that particular uh, uh, jail, comes Paul's voice saying, don't kill yourself. We're all here. We're all here. And then, of course, remember, Paul leads the whole family of the Christ. Well, the next day, the magistrates say, Well, you know, we've beat him with rods, we threw him in prison, now let's kick him out of town. So the magistrates of Philippi basically sent a message down okay, now get out of town. Paul won't go. I mean, <laughs> he does a little Jewish negotiation because he says, Wait a second, I am a Roman citizen. Now, when they heard that, they freaked out because he's been beaten with rods thrown into prison without a trial and one of the guarantees of Roman citizenship is if you had if you were not getting justice in the Roman Empire you could appeal to the emperor himself and they were scared to death Paul would appeal to the emperor get them in trouble as a colony and they would lose their right standing with Rome and so now they're listening and so the magistrates come down and say Paul please go go Paul says no here's the deal I'm not leaving this prison till you guarantee me that this church in Philippi, you don't touch, you don't persecute, you don't hurt. And when you give me that guarantee, because if you go ahead and you beat me with rods, you're going to do the same thing with them. I want guarantees that they will be safe. And only after that does Paul leave Philippi and go on down to Thessalonica and start another church. So Paul not only is the founder of this church... He actually protected them from persecution. And so these people were very close to his heart. He's now in prison in a real downtime in his life. And all of a sudden, one of their pastors show up. And with money and food and care, no wonder Paul's heart is for them. And so the very first thing Paul wants to deal with is notice verse 6. He says, now after saying, hi, I love you, I pray for you, it's so good to hear from you, he says this, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now there he says, I am absolutely confident of one thing. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Now if that's the first thing that he is so excited about and he has great confidence that God's going to complete the good work in you, Until the day of Jesus Christ, I want to know what good work is he talking about? Paul expands on this later on in chapter 2, and he tells us. As a matter of fact, look at what he says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, he's not saying, now go in and out there and work for your salvation. No, he says, work it out. The word work out is like a, a, a math problem. It's a word meaning to work out a, a a formula. Work it out to its completion. So he says, now work out to completion like a math problem, the salvation you have. And notice the fear and trembling. Greek text means fear and trembling of yourself. Not God here, but of yourself that you might not do it. Now, okay. I'm to work out my salvation like a math problem. Bring it to completion. What is it? Notice he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, now work out your salvation. Because it is God who is in you who is working out this salvation, who worked this salvation. Now go back to verse 1, verse 6 of chapter 1. When he says, now I'm confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good what? A good work in you will complete it. He, who, God. God in you has begun a good work. What's the good work? Work out your salvation. He's talking about your salvation. He says, God has begun the good work of salvation. Now work it out. Let it come to its completion. This is this word salvation, you know, we don't use that word a lot anymore. You go out there and say, hi, I'm saved. <laughs> and they go, from what? You know, what do you mean? I'm saved. And if you're Baptist, I'm saved. You know, we add a lot of syllables to it, but what do we mean I'm saved? The word is sozo. And all it means is delivered. And delivered in a sense, you've been basically delivered from one thing to something else. So when we say we've been saved or our salvation That God has done something that has delivered me from one thing to something else. Now, what is it that I've been delivered from? Well, people say, I've been saved from hell. I'm going to heaven. Well, yeah, that's true. But here he says, this is something that already happened. I've been delivered from something to something. I wasn't in hell. So how can I be delivered from hell if I wasn't in hell? I so mean, say you don't know who I'm married to. Well, no, no, that's not what we're talking about here. I'm literally talking literally. You weren't in hell, so you can't be delivered from hell. Now, in the future, this is why our salvation will be completed till the day of Jesus Christ, and there'll be a really good reason we will not go to hell, and we will go into the presence of the heavenly Father, heaven and His kingdom forever. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about something that right now, this moment, we've been delivered from something to something. And what is that something? Ever heard the word that Jesus Christ came, that you might be justified? That you might be made righteous? The word to be justified and the word to be made righteous, exactly the same Greek word. Identical word, dikaios, that's the word. And all it means, it's an architectural term. When, when, when you're building a building and you need to have a right angle and you bring, bring two lines together, those lines are in a relationship. But not until those lines are at a 90 degree angle do architects say these lines have been justified, made righteous in a sense that they are now in a right relationship. That's what justification means, to be placed in a right relationship with your creator. You go, what do you mean? What right relation with my creator? Well, that's the problem. Is because he's creator, he creates creatures. And there's all kinds of creatures. He's got creatures up the... He's got dogs. He's got cats. He's got snakes. He's got goats. He's got elephants, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. He's got all kinds of creatures. And we are one of those creatures. But did God intend for us to become a mere creature? Because how does a creature respond to its creator? In ignorance, indifference, or such fear that they create a bunch of religions or some kind of way to appease the creator. But Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, verse 27, says that when God got around to creating us human beings... It says he created man in his own image. Both male and female, he created us in his own what? Image. Now that's a big deal with God. Because later on in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, God says, "You, if an animal or any human being murders somebody, somebody who bears the image of God, they shall forfeit with their own life. So one who bears the image of God, that is such a sacred thing with God, it is not to be destroyed by anyone. Now what does it mean that we bear, we're made in the image of God? And no other angel, no other creation, no other being is bearing the image of God. So what is this all about? Have you ever wondered why the first person of the Trinity refers to the second person of the Trinity as son. And the second person of the Trinity refers to the first person of the Trinity as what? Father. When Jesus was on this earth twice, twice, from heaven, God would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. No, 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 why, why, why does the first person of the Trinity refer to him as son and son, father? It could have been, you know, Batman and Robin, Frank and Joe. I mean, why, why father, son, son, father? God created us in his image because the rela- relationship he wanted to have with us is the relationship he has with the second person of the Trinity that is the son of God himself. Why do you think you have the gospel in John chapter 1, verse 12? It says, but as many as believe in Jesus Christ, to this one God gave the right to become the what? Children of God. In Romans chapter 8, he says, God did not give you a spirit of fear, uh, but rather he gave you the spirit of adoption so that we can cry out what? Abba, Father. As a matter of fact, he says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So you're looking at me funny, you know. Well, of course, you always used to look at me funny. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter six, listen to what he says, verse sixteen. What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. For God said, "I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God." Now, okay, uh, he's going to be our creator. He's going to be our God. Yeah. Listen to verse eighteen. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons. And daughters to me, says the Lord of hosts. As a matter of fact, remember the famous verse: God works all things together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose, his purpose? What purpose are we called to? Well, whenever in doubt, remember, read the next verse. And Romans 8:29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predetermined, predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The relationship God wanted with us was not the relationship of creator with creature. But father and child. For a creature only wants to appease or be indifferent to its creator. A child, the nature of a child, is wants to please their heavenly father. Matter of fact, when you think about it, why is it that everything has to do with us, our conformity to Jesus Christ? Uh, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. He is changing us, making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the firstborn over the family, firstborn of many what? Many children, many brethren. Did you ever have a perfect older brother who just loved the, his dad? perfectly did everything perfectly and usually we would resent that he got a straight A's. he was the football player and i hate my older brother he's so perfect we have an older brother not that we're ever going to become gods but the fact he's the second person of the trinity but the description of the relationship he has with the god of this universe is a relationship that a son has with a father and that's the relationship the father wanted with us you want to know what you were saved from You were delivered from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is, you were delivered from being a mere creature who lives just to appease God to a child of God who lives to please God. Not as a creator, but as their heavenly father. Every time Jesus prayed... Every time Jesus prayed on this earth, save the one time he quotes Psalm 21, Psalm 22, verse 1, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every other time he began every prayer how? Father, Father. That's why in Ezekiel 36, he says, Not only will our sins be forgiven, but he will place his spirit within us, give us a new heart, take the heart of flesh, and the new heart will have this deep desire to keep his statutes what is normal for a child that loves his father that loves her father what is normal the nature of that child is to what to live their life to honor and to please their father god doesn't want to be known just as your creator he's got all kinds of creatures out there he's looking for children one that he can relate in the same way he relates to the second person of the Trinity. So that the second person of the Trinity would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the relationship. So when we were justified, made right, put in a right relationship with God. We were made righteous, placed in a right relationship with God. It's when we were placed in a relation with him, no longer creature, creator, but child, father. Sons and daughters with that desire. That's why the provision for forgiveness. Why would God want a lot of indifferent, rebellious children running around? So not only would he provide forgiveness by sending his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, to be the Messiah, to die on that cross, that God would pour his wrath for the consequences of sinfulness on his own son. So that he could provide forgiveness for us. And why would he provide forgiveness for us if we would basically ask for that forgiveness? Humble ourselves. Admit that we've been mere creatures. Indifferent, unloving, uncaring, appeasing. And not like those who would treat God as their heavenly father. With a desire simply to please him. To please him first. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what we've been saved And so he says, we now have become children of God. Now, I want you to see something. You ever hear the phrase, sometimes we Christians think, if we can pronounce a word or spell it, somehow that means something. We talk about righteousness. You know, I I, want to live a righteous life. (laughs) If I was to ask you right now, how many of you are righteous? Go ahead, let me see your hands. Yeah, some of you have done a little Bible study, and the rest of you, I would never do that, you know. Do you have any? Okay, then you're unrighteous. You're one or the other. What does righteousness mean? I know you can say it. I know maybe some of you can even spell it. But the fact is, what is it? We need to break out of the metaphor, beloved, and understand what are we talking about. Again, the word righteous is the same word as to be justified, placed in this right relationship. It comes down to this. Look at what he says in verses uh, eight, 7, 8, and 9. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, back in Philippians 1, because I hold you at my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. <laughs> we didn't deserve this, both in my imprisonment and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. I yearn for all with you with an affection in Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer. Now watch this. Paul says, here's my opening prayer for you. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? Why is Paul praying that we abound in love and knowledge and wisdom and discernment? Well, the purpose clause is the next verse. So that, verse 10, so that. Here's why he's praying for us. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of what? righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father now that's one of those verses that we type out and we put it on a refrigerator and we're not too sure what it means he says this whole thing is about that you may be filled with the fruit, the manifestation, the demonstration of righteousness you say okay, I am ready but I don't know what it is. I'm supposed to be demonstrating here. How do I demonstrate this righteousness? Well, remember the parallel text? Go back to chapter 2. And remember when he's expanding on this, listen to what he says. In verse 15, he says, here's that you, here's the next purpose clause, that you may blame be blameless and innocent, what? Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are luminaries you are lights in this world here here's what he's saying is I want this all was about your salvation you were delivered from kingdom of darkness kingdom of light you were delivered from being a mere creature to now being a child of God he's your heavenly Father and you've been now justified placed in a right relationship. Because the provision of your sins has been given the death of his son. And you've humbled yourself and asked for that forgiveness. He has not only forgiven you. He placed his spirit within you to give you the desire not of a creature but a child. Spirit of God gives you this desire to want to please God as your heavenly father. We are now in a right relationship. We have been made righteous. Now to live out that righteousness is to live my life no longer like a creature appeasing God, being indifferent to God, but rather I'm living out my life as one who's a child of the Heavenly Father. And everything and anything I do with the heart desire to please God as my Father is a righteous act. And anything I do To please me or to appease my creator is an unrighteous act. And when we mess up because this is our nature, what is the promise of 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. That is, lift off the consequences and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. All that stuff we do to please me, myself, and I the blessed trinity, all the stuff I do basically to maybe appease God. So I go to church, I pray to try to keep God off my back, not to get angry at me. All of that is unrighteousness. Because you're living like you're a creature and not a child of God. But you see, a bad case of the normal is a child of God. They they are righteous. You are righteous because you're children of God. And you live righteously because what drives you is this desire to want to please your Heavenly Father. You know, later on, Paul will make this statement at the towards the end of chapter one. He says, For me to live is Christ. But the die is gain. What does he mean to live is Christ? I hear people say, Well, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to for me to live is Christ. Again, do you know what you're talking about? What he's talking about is for me to live is that I desire to please Christ first. Sure, I want to please my wife. I want to please my kids. I want to please my boss. I want to please the church. I want to please my neighbors. I want to please everybody. But the fact is, I try to do all that, and I get in all kinds of trouble because if I please this person, then they're mad. And if I please that person, then they're upset. And life just begins to rip you and you begin to leak joy. But what Paul is saying is for me to live as Christ. I want to please Christ first. So I'll love my wife the way Christ tells me to. So when I'm loving my wife, I'm first obeying Christ. And I'll love my friends the way Christ tells me to. And I'll love my kids the way Christ tells me to. And I'll be a citizen of this nation the way Christ tells me to. And I will be an employee the way Christ tells me to. Because my driving force is I'm a child of God. And I want to please the Father. And I don't always know how to. But I have an older brother. The firstborn of all creation. Not created, but the authority over creation. I have an older, perfect brother who said that his food is to do the will of him who sent him. That his whole life was not my will, but thy will be done. And I know that if I am pleasing Christ, I'm learning how to please God as my Father. That's why we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we're being conformed by the Spirit of God into the image of Jesus Christ. Because created in the image of God, we were never meant to be remain as mere creatures, but to become the very children of the Heavenly Father. So, when David prays after he messing up big time in Psalm 51, 12, he says, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. What he's saying is, God, I want to be in a place that you can remove my fears, my fears of my economic situation, my fears of, of my enemies, my fears of life, my fears of aging, And God, the way that you're going to produce that in me is when I remember who I am. I have been made righteous. I've been placed in a right relationship with you. No longer creature creator, but son father, daughter father. And therefore my life has purpose and destiny. I'm driven with this desire that your spirit has given me To please you first. But I don't always know how to do that. But you gave me your son, Jesus Christ, and I follow Jesus. My life is Christ. The life I live now is Christ, because I know that if I follow and imitate Christ, I'll be living out my pleasure of pleasing the Heavenly Father. This is our salvation. And Paul begins this book by saying, This is where it starts. When you've got reversals in your life, and you're leaking joy, and all of a sudden you're becoming really fearful about the future, listen, everybody's dealing with that. But for you to be a luminary to this world, put yourself in a place that the Spirit once again can produce this absence of fear, this joy, this presence of rest, this peace, And when we walk around these economic times with with no fear and a sense of rest, people are going to want to know why. And the answer is simple. I am trusting my heavenly Father. Meanwhile, I'm just all about wanting to please God as my Father, and that's why I follow Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. Does this make sense, folks? This is just how the book begins. Is this not a great book? And it gets better. And when I come back September 27th, you will be tested. And so begin and read through. Search the scriptures and see if this is not so. You've heard me say for years and years and years, walk worthy. All that means is walk worthy of the call to what you've been called to. You have been called to be creatures fearful and appeasing God with religion you've been called you've been justified you've been made righteous you've been made a child of God he's placed the very new heart of the spirit of God within you you have the heart for it the pattern of Christ to follow spirit of God will do the most remarkable thing by removing your fears and giving you a remarkable sense of peace and rest Therefore, walk worthy of the great call to which you've been called. And finish the book of Philippians. (laughs) Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have not left us on this planet to be mere creatures. Lord, there are those who want to convince us that there's really nothing different between us and any other animal, that animals have as many rights and Matter of fact, even a higher priority than even children starving in many countries. Lord, we've turned this whole thing upside down. There are people who are encouraging us to be creatures, remain as creatures, and continue to be indifferent, or to embrace religion and try to appease the creator in some creative ways. But Jesus came, brought us the truth, and the truth would set us free free to become human beings created in the image of God for the purpose of becoming your children, loving and pleasing you until the day that Jesus Christ returns and we shall be like Him in every way. Lord, if there be someone here this morning and they've never understood or heard the gospel, may they understand that There's a God who so loves them that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him would never perish but have everlasting life, a destiny, a purpose, a reason to live as a child of the Heavenly Father. Lord, may we walk worthy of this. When times are tough, we become fearful. Let us remember who we are in Christ and let the joy and the peace of the Spirit of God flow once again that people might see there were children of light in a kingdom of light. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ.